through 40. When the time came for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace, for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. There was also a prophet, Anna, the daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. When Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The kids can join Kelly for Sunday school. The saying that I like on, you know, Christmas is over, let Christmas begin. Um, that, that for the church, you know, Christmas is, is just, just beginning. Um, but Christmas in the cultural sphere is over. We're, we've moved on to bigger and grander things. But for us, uh, we get to sit in Christmas a little bit longer. We get to sit with the mystery of the incarnation. We get to sit in um, feasting. Um, of taking in what God has done. Um, now, there's a, there's a, it's a bit funny on today that there are not many of us. Um, the, uh, a long time ago, when I was new at this, I had thought a Sunday like, I think Christmas was on, or the second Sunday of Christmas was on New Year's Day. And I was like, who's going to come? And so we canceled Kids Church, and we did the Slaughter of the Innocents, Dead Babies, um, and it was packed. Um, and I was like, well, this is not, um, and it's a dark story, so I wanted to talk about it as it was a dark story. That was one of my greater regrets, but today, um, here we are, small but mighty. Um, but I would say that, you know, we have 
we have great characters for us in the text of people who are like this, Simeon and Anna, that they come and are regularly at the temple. And both of them um, have this hope in suffering that's saying, why do you keep doing that? Why do you keep going? Why, why keep practicing in this way? And yet Anna, um, widowed, keeps showing up. It, it, it's I don't like reading hyperbole into scripture, but it's like she lives there is the way that Luke says it, that, that Anna lives at the temple, and Simeon is there often as well. And so we have these two characters who would show up on a day like December 27th, 2020, um, to join and to worship together. Now, just to be clear, not everybody wasn't at the temple because Christmas had just happened in the first century. See that? <laughs> no Christmas hangover back then, um, except for the shepherds. Um, uh, but this uh, this Sunday, there's a couple of big themes that that sort of come out of all the texts that we read this morning. But the first is is the centrality of sort of the temple in Israel. We've talked about it so much going through this that Jesus doesn't come from nowhere. But the two main stories we have of Jesus' youth, and it's clear from here that the Gospels are not biographies. As we talk sometimes about the Gospels as biographies, but they're actually proclamation texts. They want you to know that Jesus is Lord. And so that's often why, like in Mark, Jesus shows up 33 years of age. Uh, in John, similar, um, although he's preexisted, uh, he's older than time itself. So John really gets biography, I guess, done that way. Um, and in Matthew 2, you just have the scene of, of sort of the slaughter of the innocents. And Luke adds two stories, this one um, where he's very young, um, because the purification rites they're talking about for Mary would be 40 days, and for um, presentation at the temple of circumcision for a boy would be eight days. Um, and so these two events are sort of right after Jesus is born. Um, and so these, and then the second scene that Luke preserves for us is the next one, which is where Jesus is lost or left at the temple. And so we have these two scenes that tell us that Jesus in Luke's gospel is centered on the temple in some ways. That, that Jesus, right after he is born, he is brought to the temple. Jesus is, is sort of blessed first or secondarily at the temple by Simeon and Anna in some ways, who see in him this star for Israel, a star for the regathering of God's people. The second is, is that, um, that these sort of stories point to the centrality of what is happening there. But this morning we heard in the psalm too, we heard the psalm uh, that all of creation will praise. Now these psalms are, are often not my favorite psalms, not just because they're happy, um, which isn't why they're not my, it's just, uh, it, there's like five of them, or, or there's probably ten of them in the, the, the Psalter, and they're all praise him this, praise him that, praise him this, praise him that, and I'm always like, I get it. Um, everything praises the Lord. But there are two things that I think that are, are crucial here. One is that we often think around Christmas as that this is for salvation for humans. But what the Psalter and much of the Old Testament and large portions of the New Testament about is that creation is going to be renewed. That creation is going to properly praise God again. It's not just us who receives this news, but sort of all that's encompassed gets set back to right. 
And so the notion that the ox would praise the Lord, the wild animals and the cattle, the small creatures and the flying birds, is this notion that all of creation will sing with God's song someday. And we, we bring that news to us on Christmas, or on Christmas Eve and the first Sunday of Christmas to remind us that this world that can exist in agony and groaning, as Paul says, someday will sing with the praises of God. The psalm names that. Isaiah, I think, has, has this beautiful thing that Emily read for us, is that the soul is rejoicing in the Lord, and we've talked about what does our soul do and how to rejoice. But the two images that, that Isaiah holds out for what God is doing is a wedding and a garden. And it's weird because we live in a very um, mechanized world. But these, the one is, is, is a covenant type of thing. It's, a, it's something done between two people. It's relational. The other is agrarian. It takes time. And if you garden like I do, it often fails. And what we see in the book of Isaiah is that Israel is more like um, an adulterous partner. But here, towards the end, God is restoring that covenant again. When we aren't faithful, God is faithful. So often we get our own faithfulness confused with God's faithfulness. But in fact, God is faithful beyond our ability to be faithful ourselves. And so, the renewal of this, this clothing and being ordained as a bridegroom and as a bride, speaks to the God who, who wipes out the past in which we have been unfaithful and renews us. The second theme in the book of Isaiah is how desolate the world is. And that the hope um, springs up like little sprigs at times. And it's not hard for us in, in our darker times to look out and see just desolation. Uh, I think, Emily, it was you who talked about, or maybe it was somebody, uh, Kim I know talks about it often, keeping a gratitude journal. And the difference, a gratitude journal, writing down good things that have happened to you three a day, in some ways adds up to a thousand um, over the course of a year, or more than a thousand, I guess. Um, three times 330, right, Carla? Yeah. Math checks out. Maybe you get Sunday off. And then it adds up to a thousand. Anyways, um, in that type of orientation, we can see desolation of the land. We can look out and see everything cut down and burned and nothing else there. But what Isaiah speaks for us here is that God renews the ground. That destruction and desolation isn't the final word. That hope springs up again. For soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seed to go so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all nations. God renews what seems lost. And these two truths are for the sake of all the nations. That people will come and know. This brings us to Simeon's sort of words. The, the one other thing um, God rest you, merry gentlemen, which has got to be like near number one for the least politically correct starting to a hymn. Um, God rest ye, merry humanity. Um, but what, what that hymn has in it, 
um, that many uh, allude to, too, is that this is a victory over Satan's power. The cosmic notion of what happens in Christmas, of, of the cosmic notion of what happens in the incarnation is not lost in that song. It's not just, um, I love uh, manger scenes, but the manger scene needs like a dark cloud getting pushed away or something like that. That there is, um, uh, the quaintness that we experience with this is in fact, um, and we talked about this on Christmas Eve, is the beginning of an invasion against the darkness of the world. And so the Galatians reading that Kelly read for us, Galatians, uh, if you just read that passage, um, it's about our adoption into sonship and being freed, um, born to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. This, um, this out of context is, is similar to what Romans is talking about. But what Paul begins Galatians with is that we have been, in the Greek, apocalypsed in Christ, out of the kingdom of the present darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We've been, um, in our own sort of way, um, revealed an apocalypse to a different place. And so at the end of the letter, or towards the end of the letter, where he's talking about our adoption, he's not just talking about being transferred from one family to another, but being rescued from all that is dark and brought into a kingdom of light in which we know God as Father again. So Jesus is born of a woman, and, and early church fathers are great on this in that he is born to be saved within humanity, meaning he doesn't save humanity from humanity, and he doesn't pull us from humanity, but he's born into humanity, and that is how God saves us through our mechanisms, through what we are is the way that God comes. And he, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship, because you are his children, God sent his son into your hearts, the spirit who cries out, Abert, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but God's child, since you are his child. God has made you an heir. That we are moving into this kingdom of light. It's not just an adoption agency sort of transferring, although that has great meaning as well. But in Galatians, it's this cosmic movement from where we go from one plane that is desolate and dark, as Isaiah would talk about, to a plane in which light reigns which we are brought into a new kingdom. So that brings us to Luke's reading. We talked about them going to the temple. Um, when we went through the book of Leviticus, um, one of the things I tried to help us capture is that Jesus' body is, is um, marked with the book of Leviticus. What Mary does in bringing him to the temple and is offering these... Um, Pigeons, uh, or turtle doves, um, or, or doves, is it? yeah, doves or pigeons, um, and she's practicing the book of Leviticus. So Jesus is the one who has that book written on his body. That's why we spend probably half the year um, in the Old Testament sort of learning from the book that Jesus was grafted into. This is uh, funny, I was thinking about this as, as Carla read it, that uh, Strange interpretations abound in early Christianity, but the best one on this was doves were the ways in which Jesus goes to the sky and pigeons are the ways in which he purifies the earth because apparently pigeons were ground birds then too that just hang out under overpasses and doves somehow were birds that sailed. And so he says that those, those two birds represent his purifying mission. Much more creative than we are today. 
And we meet this man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who is righteous and devout, waiting the consolation of Israel, the comforting of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. And here he sees the child Jesus. I've recently, or just this past year, read the, uh, the biography of St. Benedict written by a pope in the fourth century, and it contains all these amazing miracles. One I was telling Brian and Carla was that a, a guy was cu- cutting wood with an axe, and the head of the axe flies off into the lake, and Benedict takes the handle, and he goes out to the lake and holds the handle there, and the head of the axe comes back to the axe. Um, this is the type of crazy things that they would write about. But one of the things that somebody asked me, and I can't remember if it was you, Carla, was like, would well, you really believe that that happened? And I said, and I've said this to other people, it's like, it's hard enough for me to believe that Benedict, after seeing the decadence of Rome, lived in a cave for four years and prayed and survived off the charity and gifts of other than it is for me to believe in this. And I think that Simeon and Anna, these pious people who keep showing up all the time, and and piety trades poorly in today's world, um, are unbelievable. Um, At least for me. It's, It's this notion that like, the axe coming back to the axe handle, I'm like, I guess. But a guy who sits in a cave and prays because of the decadence around him and survives off the gifts of others, that seems nuts. Four years. Some guy who the Spirit has revealed to him that he will see this, uh, 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 Simeon, this consolation of Israel, continues to show up and wait and pray and be faithful. Like, well, he must be doing something else in the meantime. He must have more fun than that in his life. But to live in a soul's dedication is often lost in the world today. Sometimes I think about the ways in which Christians can be different today. And I don't know, part of reading this passage and thinking about that biography of Benedict, I don't know if piety is the way we can do it. So often today in the world as Christians, we, we and I I'm, I'm include myself in this, attempt to be with the world. We've, we say we're supposed to be in the world and not of the world, and we take in pretty seriously. Um, but the not of um, looks like legalism, I think, too much to us, and so we rebel against it. So I think that there's perhaps a way, like Simeon and Anna, that we can renew our waiting. We can renew our worship. We can renew being there. And this, based on you guys being here today, is literally preaching to the choir. (laughs) But I don't know. I mean, I was thinking about it this week. Simeon is this one who's just waiting there because the Spirit had revealed this to him. I'd be one who says to him, I hope you're right. Um, Keep going, Simeon, but I don't know. Um, And yet his piety keeps him there. Moved by the Spirit, he goes, and he takes the child in the arms, praising Lord, Sovereign Lord, you have promised you may dismiss your servant in peace. Which is, he's seen it. He's, He's ready to be dismissed in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the sight of all nations, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. That he perceives like Mary did earlier um, with the Holy Spirit, and you see this in Luke often, that the Spirit enables people to perceive beyond their time, to perceive outside of their time and context to the fullness of what God is going to do. I meant to to share this in the past, um, but I'll do it today from memory, is there's this novel, Imagining Argentina, 
Um, and this young boy um, in the novel is able to sort of um, do miracles and, and proceed in different ways. And one of the things he's sitting in the car with a um, a troop as the or with a another person as the troops are sort of moving by. And what he tells to the man is that you see all this; it's not real. He says you perceive that these powers, these ways, this this violence is the way the world's run, but it's not real. And and through that, him and the boy are able to sort of pass across this division in the city into another area. But what he's what that scene teaches us is that what the boy is doing is being able to perceive perceive by the spirit that these things are over. That the fullness of things, that these things don't win. And that's what we see in Simeon and other people whom the Spirit is upon, particularly in Luke's writing, is they see things from the end. So that violence and desolation and destruction and adultery aren't the final words. But God's renewal, God's being with, God's um, transferring us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, that is what's more real than the things that we perceive. Um, it's an invitation to look insane in the world today, but it's an invitation for us to see with the eyes that God has for us. And this can inspire us to live and to be in different ways. The child and the mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed him and said to Mary, this child is destined to cause the rise, the falling and the rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. What Simeon names for her is this: what we see in Jesus. And the, the line that I think I almost messed up reading it is that he will be a sign for the falling and rising. We often in our culture say rising and falling, rising and falling. But what Simeon begins with is he'll be a sign for the falling and rising of many. And the sword will pierce your own soul too. These are both allusions to that, the fact that, the, that Jesus' life goes from cross to death to resurrection to new life. To get to the rising, he must pass through the falling. To get to where he is raised back up, he has to go through the cross. He can't go around that. And so what Simeon names for them is this reality that this isn't just good news that the Gentiles who us will be bathed in light, which is what Simeon's alluding to, but there is challenge and heartache that comes as well. And he speaks this to both the parents, that the sword will pierce your soul too. There's also a prophet Anna and she, uh, as classic as in loose gospel, doesn't speak, but he has these um, two sort of pairs all the time, male and female, male and female, from John's parents earliest in the gospel to Joseph and Mary to, to proclaiming the same truth, um, that God is going to do these things. And what she sees in him, she never left the temple, but worshipped, again, the reverse, night and day, not day and night. Fasting and praying, coming to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Going back to where we started, Anna and Simeon are those who keep vigil, who those who keep showing up 
fasting and praying, awaiting what God is going to do. And we, like them, see that from the other side. We're awaiting the return, but we stand in their hope and practice. We are like Simeon, who's finally received his vision. That's why Luke preserves it for us. We are like Anna, who sees this and goes and tells other people that now God is going to restore the face of the earth. So may it be for us, as we approach our lives and our days, that we would be uh, inspired by the model of Simeon and Anna, those who continue to pray, to fast, to show up, to tell others, and to be full of the Holy Spirit to see what God has done in Jesus Christ and what God will do in his return. I'll skip the quote on the back of the bulletin, but it fits into this. Um, Let us pray. God, we have shown up on this day to hear of the good news of what you've accomplished and done in your servant, Jesus Christ. We ask that your spirit would give us eyes to see, hearts to receive, the good news that Simeon and Anna saw first at the temple. the restoration that you accomplish for Israel, the binding back together of them, in its fullness will be a return of the world to you. Creation will sing to you. The present kingdom of darkness will be no more, and we will all be brought into the kingdom of light. Keep our hearts in recollection and memory 